0: Hello and welcome to the EG Property Podcast with me, EG Editor Sam McClary, and the latest in our Fundamentals of the Future series, a series of lessons that focuses on real estate's role in helping solve the world's climate crisis. Now this episode features an hour-long roundtable hosted by civic engineers that brings together a collection of experts from across the built environment to talk about the big issues real estate faces and the big solutions it can and should be coming up with. Listen in to understand more about the need for retrofit to be a sexier word than development, the role of placemaking and greening up our built environment, and the policy changes needed to turn real estate from polluter to protector of the planet. Now, a word of warning for listeners. This roundtable was not recorded in a studio, so at times you may need to lean in a little closer to the conversation. But while the quality of sound may not always be top-notch, I guarantee the content is. Enjoy.
1: Welcome, everybody.
2: Um, I'm Rob Westcott from Civic Engineers. Um, On behalf of Gareth and and Andrew, um, we we are your hosts from Civic Engineers. Uh, Welcome. It's uh, really lovely to have you here. It's brilliant to have such a stellar cast uh, around the table. We're looking forward to a really interesting debate. In a moment, I'm going to hand you over to our chair, Sam McClary from EG. Um, and, uh, but before we do that, it'd be great if we just had a quick sort of round of table and just to everyone give us a 20 second introduction to themselves so we all don't know each
3: other. Hi, I'm Parisa Wright. I'm the founder and CEO of Greener and Cleaner, and we work on community sustainability hubs and behavioural sites to get the community to engage with sustainability in an inclusive uh, and sort of accessible way in shopping centres at the moment, but hopefully beyond soon.
2: Uh, I'm Ben Cross from General Projects. We're a creative led real estate developer, uh, predominantly working in London, but also working with Civic up in Manchester.
4: Hi, Catherine Ramsden, founding director of Useful Studio. It's an architectural practice, but we sit within the Useful Simple Trust, which is an employee benefit trust in B Corp comprised of expedition engineering. So it's got engineers, uh, sustainability consultants, and Thomas Matthews, who are graphics and communication.
5: Morning, uh, Andrew Ruck, uh, one of the studio directors here at Civic, um, and basically a, a slightly maverick engineer that enjoys trying to find things to reuse in buildings or buildings that we can play around with. So that's kind of... What excites
6: me hi i'm marion Bailey uh, from pdp london uh, architects we work with civic on a couple of projects uh including one on the flagship on oxford street which i hope you should have a look at in um, contrast with the ms first story uh, but i'm an expert in retrofit and i've re- re- written a book about 20 case studies of how to retrofit buildings and i only guess this is what's led me to talk a lot about it in the last
7: 10 years, in that last 10 years. So, um, the topic is raised uh,
8: to the board. Good morning, everyone. Jake Wilson. I'm the head of design at B First. Uh, B First is a development company. We're wholly owned by Barking and Dagon Council, so we work solely in the borough, and the significant growth happening in the borough, so predominantly focus on residential, but also industrial, commercial, a lot of master planning.
9: Good morning, everyone. So I'm Gareth Atkinson. I'm a civil and structural engineer. I'm director here in the London studio, at Civic Engineers. Um, I have a strong passion for uh, working towards net zero in the industry. Uh, I enjoy very much working with existing buildings and existing streets. And I think retrofitting is something which is going really key to us over the over the sort of next ten years and onwards to make sure we can hit net zero targets. Um, there's a bit of a provocation which we've left on the table for you. It's the sketches uh, around um, maybe what's existing when proposed and also something on the back which actually Andrew dreamt up, which is called our carbon quadrant. So maybe as we go through some discussions, we can we add can this to the mix.
10: morning, everyone. I'm Lydia Morrow. I'm from Lipton Rodgers. We build big um, <laughs> and it means that this debate is very key for us at the moment because Building big, it doesn't lend itself to this conversation and where the way the industry is pushing. Um, so we're having lots of very interesting conversations about how we how we incorporate the idea, uh, which is very welcome, I must say. Um, Peter Rogers, one of the directors, um, founded the Green Council, I believe, and was one of the founding members. So he is has been on this agenda for a very, very long time, a lot longer than even I Probably I've been in the industry, to be honest, but um, it, it's a very interesting debate and I'm super interested to see how it's going to pan out. Really.
11: Hello, I'm Edward Jarvis from the London Borough of Camden, um, working in the planning department, um, responsible for design. And, uh, and I think for us, the retrofit thing is really, really significant at the moment because as a borough, um, We've been off prime. Central London borough, we've been off prime for many years. Westminster and the city being the focus for a lot of development. And it's left us with a lot of 60s, 70s and 80s office stock, far more than I think we have in our neighbouring boroughs. And, and 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 because of King Cross and, and Crossrail, the kind of explosion of interest in the borough. So I think it's becoming a really pressing issue um, because we have the stock, but the values are pushing things way beyond uh, way beyond. So it's a really, really interesting thing at the moment. Good
1: morning, everybody. I'm Pedro Gill. I'm founder and director of Studio Gill. We're an architect's practice um, and we work with communities. We're designing um, social housing in different London boroughs and also working on community buildings. Um, and on a separate note, I'm also a commissioner for the Mayor of London. I'm in the Commission Diversity uh for, for the public round which is tasked with overviewing london-wide policy and making recommendations about creating equitable space for london's
12: hello everybody i'm rob harris from we're a um Systems Engineering and Sustainability Practice. Um, the team are probably better known for starting Letty, which is one of the driving forces in change at the moment, and also more recently um, writing the embodied, can- embodied carbon standard for um, MEP systems, which are very, very related to the re- retrofit discussion um, when the structure becomes slightly less important. Uh, yeah. So I'm a mechanical engineer by training, but um, the opportunity to run loads of people, lots of different projects um, from every different type of scale.
10: And I'm
13: Olivia O'Brien, uh, I'm a senior climate consultant on Objective Partners, which is a kind of multidisciplinary um, really um, and sustainability yeah, advisory focusing in the real estate sector. And yes, on JETA I can help with a range of different clients, um, try and sort of identify and quantify and mitigate any of their identified kind of risks, so I love that. The carbon side of things, policy, legislation, and um, physical risks, um, and yeah, kind of so access.
14: I am Henry bosson I currently head up global business development at John Macasson Partners and I'm an architect and have worked in probably every continent except South America.
7: Now you've all had some computer questions, I'm not going to read through the intro because I, I assume everyone <laughs> can to Henry but you know it, this is going to be a really useful and important discussion and I hope that everyone takes something away from, from each other on it you know there's a a big a big problem that we need to solve and people around this table are the other problem solvers so um let's i'm going to go off script first um because that is is what i do but um let's start with the question here in the intros that if the greenest building is one that already exists and i want to i want to stick to that because one of the the so fundamentals of the real estate industry is building new stuff, isn't it? Big shiny buildings, a big tower over, over there. How do we, or should we, change the thinking patterns of the real estate industry that we don't need to build anymore? We can just, enough is enough some, sometimes. Lydia, I'm going to start, start with you, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts around do we need to build more, or if we do want to? Save this wonderful
10: planet as you've got in that format? I think uh, it's a really tough question because I do think we we I think there's a balance. Definitely there's a balance. I think we do need to build more and new and different because requirements have changed. And actually it's it's quite interesting. This is very typical for us at the moment. We're talking about a building I won't tell you which one it is but it is a 1960s building and it is um, not well maintained. Um, It is very small, uh, low, floor-ceiling heights, um, and all the things that people are saying that they don't want now. How do we actually repurpose that so that we... And I was having this conversation with someone out on on the balcony, is that there, there also is a social balance to that, because if we are just reusing something and making it because we want to reuse everything, it doesn't mean people want to come and use that space themselves. And actually, are we... Are we creating white elephants? I, I do think there is um, a more of an RD and d conversation we need to be having about how we reuse those spaces. Because at the moment, what we're saying quite simply, I think, and I'm hoping people will correct me if I'm wrong, is, right, we'll just leave that as it is, and we'll reclad it, and we'll put some new MEP in, and, we'll, uh, and that'll be it, and then, and then that, that's a building and it's, it's repurposed, and it's fine, and we'll keep it. But I don't think that's actually the full story. We need to be thinking about how do we get what we need in terms of the space? How do we extend it? How do we make it higher? How do we, in terms of R&D, how do we make those things happen? Because there are ways of doing it. We are, you know, in in America, they can pick up an entire building and move it state. I don't see why we can't jack up floors and do something different, which doesn't work against the story that we are discussing here but contributes towards getting where we need to be in terms of buildings that last for another 100, 200 years.
7: So that sounds like an engineering slash architectural question. How do we pick up buildings, move them around? Gareth, and what are your thoughts on that? That was it. I thought it was. Got me excited already.
9: Engineering, moving things, checking things up. A more, we're doing a lot of work in the city where more often than not, we are having to adapt buildings in quite complicated ways. Removing columns um, to allow for bigger spaces. Uh, I mean, this building here actually has got a lot of columns. It was designed as a grain store, and this was, would have been brought to the rafters with grain. Actually, this works as a space, and it's interesting as a space. Whereas we know a lot of modern office buildings, agents are asking you to, to create really big floor plans and doing that, you're using exponential amount of carbon in doing so. Slightly different subject but on, on that matter. But, yeah, there is opportunities to play around with buildings. And rather than crumbling them into little bits, we can use uh, uh, good engineering techniques and skills to be able to work with them. Not, not quite jacked up floors yet, but maybe, <laughs> maybe that might be an answer. If there's a 1960s building. Um, where it's the floor the ceiling heights are just a little bit too small. Is there something we can do with a little bit more sophistication,
14: which enables you to to keep that building without having to, to break it down? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, sorry, from, from an architectural point of view, maybe. Um, I think that in the case of programming buildings and how we actually use them, um, rethinking how spaces work in the future, and perhaps, you know, the function of a building today might be completely different to how buildings, if we can try to fathom how buildings will be used in a 35 years or in 100 years' time. Um, and I, I think of it as an example because when I was um, working in Cape Town, Thomas Heather had just finished that silo building where they cut that sort of um, grain out of the, the, the silos. And you know the program of the building has drastically changed from what you imagine and it sat dormant for Seventy-five years, really, before anything happened. So, I, I think there is an opportunity to change buildings around. I think we we just have to think about how humans would be using spaces if we can try and imagine how humans would be using spaces in a hundred years time. And I think th- and this is a good example as well. You know, you know, you can't, I, I can't imagine what they were doing in this building and it was built or why it was built and what it was built for. But um, there, there probably is a flexibility we can build into spaces today that. Would allow it to be used for something that's completely and utterly different in 300 years' time, if, if it survives that long. Because not every building is going to be at like St. Paul's, you know, sort of purpose built mm. and hoping to stay like that till the end of time. I think buildings need to start adapting a bit more, even as they conceived to, to slightly different uses of time, So slightly different from the jacking up and moving. But I think even as we're building SIP, they could probably be imagined differently.
7: Thank you. Mary, I'm really keen to get your in, insight on this. you we're in a book, book on it, you must have some, some great insights on retrofitting those, those buildings that we um, should pick up and move if we need to. And also thinking about new buildings and how we might retrofit those in the, in the future. So the first question,
6: I suppose, is uh, <clears> that we, we need to... And I, I, I understand that as a developer, it's a bit difficult, but to know why we're doing the development we're doing, is there a need, particularly in that location for whatever we're going to do with it? And the, the, the trouble is when you're a developer, you don't know that you're end user yet from the start. So you might work on something for three or five years for an end user that you, you speculate on quite a lot. So. I would say, and and Henry, you've you've kind of uh, really put it really well, I have to say, uh, the flexibility of the use of building is absolutely fundamental. And it's valid not only for a retrofit, but also for a new build. I would really challenge um, uh, planners, I suppose, to agree on a generic use for a new building. So, for example, in France, that's just happened in Bordeaux. The first building is built to a generic use, so it can be used to Resi office or um, or community or other other purposes, built to rent, etc. And I think this is really interesting because that really cements the flexibility and the durability of the of the building life in the future. The more flexible, the better. So the first question really is why, and then the second is is be flexible. And obviously, that all goes with net zero and super efficiency. And I sit on the Passive House Trust board. For me, the principles of Passive House are solid, proven. Uh, building physics is base. It's just, you know, it's stop speculating on how we need to do an efficient building. We know how to do it for the last 25 years, thousands of buildings. So I would just um, love you for that as well. Um, so, uh, yes, I hope that answers the question.
2: <laughs>
7: and give the developer view.
2: Well, so, I mean, Marion, you said it, it, it like as a developer, it's a bit, it's a bit difficult. Um, actually, it's bloody difficult. To bring forward speculative developments, because actually that end user isn't really notionally defined. And one of the things that we do is we we try to put ourselves in the shoes of the end user and see our buildings more as products rather than square footage and space. And Lydia, your your point around like the agency <coughs> world and the agency world being obsessed with ECO and water see heights. This building is not ECO compliant. It's a fantastic space. Mm-hmm. And when agents talk about floor to ceiling heights, it's just a lazy measure of building quality. And actually, when you look over the last 200 years, the buildings that have been built were actually built at higher standards, higher <coughs> physical qualities in architecture than buildings are now. Buildings now are steel framed structures skinned in metal and steel, the glass boxes. <laughs> Which obviously comes with it. If there are nice glass boxes, then there are some that are not so great. Um, and the thing that we always philosophically draw ourselves back to about building a new and retrofit is that in 2050, the year that we're supposed to be net zero, whatever that means, 80% of the building stock that will be around in 30 years time already exists. So the blind spot of every developer out there is we've got to deal with existing buildings and we can't deal with them in a way that says, oh, well, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's a suboptimal product. Actually, we've got to take that and run with it and prove that existing buildings are just as good, if not better, than new buildings. And so I think rather than building big, we've got to think bold around how we do this. And it's a challenge because ultimately, there's a lot of regulation that's put in front of you to help you get to that point. And there are are flippant, lazy measures of what a good building is. And actually building a place that people love is kind of the, the goal of all of sustainability. If you build something that people care about, going to look after it it's going to stand the test of time and ultimately in future when future generations come along they're going to want to retrofit it again because it's a building that represents societal value to the individuals Um, so you know i think i think i I think we need more more people to care you know genuinely Um, and we need people to care not about the bottom line but about quality of space that
7: we're delivering we're going to come back to that l word um love um uh, a bit later when we talk about the place making opportunities and also i think the, the policy it's well, one i think it's an important word to, to use in policy but i want to i'm um, sticking with um sort of retrofit and how we maybe don't build more but build build better um i want to um, sort of focus on some of the well, I, I would consider actually the more the more difficult parts of the the sector retail for for one and and Resi as, as, as well so do
3: you want to start us about on, on retail um, with re- well hopefully not with regards <laughs> to actually yes with regards to <laughs> retrofit so basically it's more about change of use than retrofit but but as you guys know obviously even before the pandemic more and more shop units were closing down because people are buying online and quite frankly The reason they want to go to a shop nowadays, I mean, post-pandemic, it's been a nightmare because people have got used to not going to shops, is they want to go there if there's an experience. So actually, if you're Boots or if you're Marks and Spencers and people have got used to buying you online and there's no additional experience, maybe if you're bra fitting section in M&S, that might be different. (laughs) But if there's no real experience that people are going there for then why wouldn't they just continue shopping online? They reduce their risk of catching COVID or anything else. We're all more paranoid now about everything. Um, And it's just very convenient for them. It's very easy for them. So, for example, we've seen how local shopping centres are having more and more vacant units. um, And also that now they are booking in more and more (coughs) clients to fill those units, which are not retailers, which are either... Uh, bars, restaurants, um, cafes, or they are sort of more curated shops, which are run by people who bring something different to the community. And so people want to come in for that particular experience around that shopping, which they can't find online. So local makers or whatever else it is, you know, a shop that's got gifts, but they're all sustainable, et cetera, et cetera. So what we've done is we've worked with uh, LaSalle, which is a conglomerate that owns a load of shopping centres across the UK uh, to pilot something in southeast London, one of the main shopping centres um, and in a really mainstream space to bring the community together and to sort of share community values and to ch- change culture um, as Ben was saying to change it to a caring for a different kind of priorities. so basically it's about supporting the community uh, to understand and go along with sustainability and have that as a priority in their lives and to popularise and normalise that conversation, to make it much more accessible. So it's not on Facebook, it's not on a website anymore. It's there for everyone to get involved in. It's free activities for everybody, workshops, etc. It's free assistance, it's peer-to-peer. So it's all local volunteers giving up their time, plus obviously some paid roles to make sure it works. But it's like based in the Glade Shopping Centre at the moment, the pilot just went live in March. Um, and uh, basically it's next to mcdonald's it's next to h&m it's next to new look and it's next to the entertainer as well as waterstones so a lot of those demographics are not necessarily already engaging and already the diversity and inclusion element of what we're doing has already changed massively the kind of pe- the people who are coming in are just completely different to who is engaging online and suddenly that feeling of sort of community is changing you know People are getting to know more people. People know that if they're feeling down or if they're feeling lonely or if they've got a question, they're confused, they're angry about sustainability or just about their community and how it works, they can go to that space. And suddenly that's bringing footfall to the shopping centre, it's bringing footfall to the town centre. And we're working with a library of things there as well. So again, repurposing space. So the two, this sort of hub has always been at the back of a church hall, in a civic centre, you know, an extremely run-down area of a shopping centre or really, really like grotty mall kind of thing and now this is in a really commercial space next to all these sort of commercial spaces and it's fitted out accordingly as well so it doesn't look like something that should be in the back of a church hall but at the same time we've got the library of things which is traditionally in libraries in crystal palace hackney etc cetera, etc cetera. and for the first time it's in a mainstream setting as well so people are walking past me going oh you know seeing that or coming in for that and discovering the rest of us or discovering the rest of us and you know and i just think that's a phenomenal development in the way that shopping centres and town centres and indeed, you know, sort of even residential, big residential developments can can really benefit from this idea of bringing communities together, empowering communities to support themselves. Um, and we definitely have found like peer-to-peer case study sharing is much more effective at changing culture and getting people to engage with sustainable living and those values than it is to tell people you've got to do this before blah 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 it's giving them those solutions but more than anything celebrating what they're already doing so they feel empowered to tell other people about it and they're helping each other so i'm hoping well the aim is we're working on this pilot uh, BASE has just funded stage one of it, and we're working with Imperial University and some professors from UCL and Ipsos to do a massive behavioral science research project around it. So that not only is this benefiting, obviously the local community, but the blueprint that is being evolved is being evolved through a load of behavioral science research, which means it will be- evolve to the best in show version of itself. And also that blueprint will have the behavioral science stuff embedded in it. But separate to that, we can create an, a report published by Imperial saying, if you want to talk to these different groups within these different demographics around sustainability 360 or these different six areas, then this is the language you need to use. This is the media you need to use. These are the activities that they want to get engaged with, not just what you're telling them they should get engaged with. This is what they're saying. This is what's worked and has evolved. And then finally, actually basing this on real world data, because we have got this bricks and mortar hub for the pilot to create not only the best blueprint possible with the behavioural science, but also to create this report with the behavioural science, which is then going to be shared with all the civil servants, poor civil servants in government and in councils who are desperate to sort of really effectively communicate with the public about what they can be doing around sustainability and empower them rather than telling them what to do. So, really having that tailored approach, but also sharing that report with every charity and NGO and not for profit working in sustainability and environment. So, again, that cultural change things happens two ways A, at the grassroots level of these hubs going out and being run by local charities, obviously, kind of franchise stars so they have support. But, B, this report going to the civil servants in government, in councils who actually give a shit and have their hands tied because this isn't something for votes, and so they don't have the money to do it. And going to all these charities, you have no money to do this research, as opposed to BP or whatever, who have shitloads of money to do this research. So that the behavioural change thing can also happen that way in terms of comms, in terms of those people who are doing some things and have people they're already engaging with, whether that's a disability charity, whether that's a air pollution charity, whatever that is but they're doing something around sustainability, community, social justice. They have that language. So it's basically making the best use of when you're retrofitting, when you're doing those pilots, seeing how it can impact the whole of the country and how you can share that knowledge as widely as possible so that this cultural change that we all need to see gets sped up. I love
7: how we go from retrofit to to changing culture and empowering the public to to do better, to be better. I think that's, you know that's one of the untold stories of this sector, the power that it has in in doing that we're gonna move on to placemaking soon but I do I do want to um know a little bit more about some of the struggles that there might be within that sort of in within the residential particularly around sort of social housing I think.
8: Yeah so thanks I think two thoughts come to mind one on 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 retrofit one is around uh, what we're doing on existing estates um, so in back and Dublin, we have one of the largest council estates, uh, I think, in Europe. It's the Beckentree Estate. We've just celebrated the centenary. there has been a great exhibition on Reba. And it, it's 28,000 homes and we've got huge challenges there. We've got huge fuel poverty in the borough. We need to start looking retrofit seriously a state. But for me, it has to be design led. So we've had some products come along, such as Energy Sprung. And actually, it's quite, you know, it, the appearance of it the look of it is fairly generic it's putting insulation on the outside and then a huge amount of render and for us there's huge difficulties with both the residents and the politicians about applying that we're going to significantly alter uh, the look and feel of a much lower state so what we're doing is a, is a design-led approach to retrofit that's like that's our kind of approach our ambition and that's just the kind of what we're about to start on i'd be interested to hear what more central london boroughs are doing that would be much more challenging i guess victorian edwardian um estates so we are starting to look at retrofit but for me it has to be uh, it has to be design led i think the second point is just on on new build um not everything can be retrofitted so we're working with civic on the Gascoigne estate it's 1970s system built hugely hugely challenging uh, to retrofit that um and for me we need to be looking more seriously about the design and how we design the new buildings completely agree passive house. There's huge challenges there, but I would love to be doing more um, passive house. Also, designing for disassembly. I don't mind lightweight buildings if we are designing for disassembly. And also circular economy. We would be lo- loving, you know, on all our buildings to be taking circular economy much more seriously. It's great that the GLA have done their policy, I think, it released it a couple of weeks ago on, on circular economy design. But for me, the supply chain isn't there. You know, we don't have a mature second-hand material market. We can't, you know, be looking at it in an affordable way about how we reuse we, we materials from either within the borough or from elsewhere in London which is what we'd love to do. So I think the policy is starting to emerge but for me it's, it's the design process and the supply chain needs
11: to catch up.
7: Thank you very much Jacob. Uh, Edward there's a, a call for you there to talk about uh, being a central London borough and the issue you
11: may have. There's offices and there's housing I think they're different, different sort of things. I think with the, with the housing I mean we're the, the, the struggle we have, I suppose, is conservation, you know, most of the boroughs, five and a half thousand listed buildings, 70% of the boroughs conservation area, and the stock is, uh, most of the old stock is quite difficult to retrofit externally, you know, in, 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 with, with, with insulation. I, so I think there's a, I think, I think, yeah, it'd be very, very interesting to see what we can do with that, it's probably very little. I think the stuff that's from the 60s, the reality is we're probably going to be knocking it down. And it's because the densities are so low and the quality is so poor and you know those you know the other pressure we have is delivery of housing and you know so the approach we've taken with agar grove which is a 450 home passive house scheme is to knock down the 60s estate because it's just not efficient enough in terms of uh you know housing i suppose and i think that is really the choice between retrofitting our 60s estates, if you think of things like Regent's Park Estate, if you know them large areas is going kind of quite low rise, loose 60 stuff, I think the, the reality is it's going to come down. I don't I don't think there is a retrofit future for it. Um, you know, the hassle and intervention into people's lives, it's much easier actually to um move them into a brand new home somewhere else on the state rather than just trying to build around them. So I think there are yeah, there are there, there are problems there. I think with the The office is a completely different (laughs) problem, isn't the fact that, you know, as I was saying in the kind of introduction, we've gone from being a borough that was sort of off prime to being extremely prime because of King's Cross, because of Crosswell, because of Houston very, very quickly. And it's changed the value of the office market. And Mm -hmm. we're going backwards in terms of retrofits. I think developers not that long ago would come in and the model was a retrofit model because the rental, you know, the rental income at the end was low and now. Now, because of you know, the sort of rents that you can get around the knowledge quarter and the sort of product that's wanted, which is very, very big and obviously a you know, very big um developers are now coming in and wanting to rebuild. So even, even developers that we were talking to two years ago, who were starting Pre-App with Retrofit two years ago, three years ago, are now coming to us and saying the market has changed such to such that we want to knock the building down and start again. So we're, we're, we're struggling we're going backwards, I think. Mm. Not Well, not necessarily in terms of the outcomes, but backwards in terms of what is coming to us on day one of Priya. It's moving, moving backwards.
4: Catherine, you're nodding nodding there. I mean, I've got so many different trains of thought going, <laughs> but I, I mean, just to pick up on the social one, um, and all the talking about social impact and pilots, and I was thinking about what are our challenges and how do we create, you know, bridge the disconnect? around the construction skills you talked about the supply chain but the construction sector is in a bit of a desperate situation in terms of skills two percent female on site you know lack of diversity terrible mental health problems and it's like how and then you have communities that need jobs and are suffering from fuel poverty and it's like how can we take all these conversations about um, increasing knowledge around retrofit and sustainability turn it into jobs upskilling of local communities gain their interest in the building and build a sort of passion and for the project, which is rooted in a place, and somehow it feels like we need to sort of tie them all together so that everyone benefits, and you get that sense of ownership and, and upskilling and um, better life ultimately for for locals. That's it.
7: Thank, thank you. <laughs> a challenge
4: for That's us. A so big I put challenge it to you. Um,
7: let's move. Let's move to placemaking. So I realise we are halfway through already, and um, this, this discussion and. The question You were all, all giving was um, Should place making policy aim to draw people into super hubs like London as a whole, or would it be better for community and social inclusion to focus on the minute local hubs and spreading that economic activity across the country? I'm going to start with you.
13: What are your thoughts? Um, no, I think it's definitely an interesting question. I think. Personally, I would say definitely to spread it out, only because if you think about, for example, London, it's not just the building stock. If you have such a huge hub, then you've got everything else that surrounds it, like the pollution, the um, traffic, everything else. um, And also, obviously, all the wealth is then sort of centralised there. Whereas then if you're spreading out to different areas, obviously, you've got to be mindful that you're not then creating a new problem of developing in places where potentially it could have been sort of greenfield sites, for example, or greener areas. Um, But if we're smart about it and we're kind of, you know, using, again, existing stock in other areas and, you know, building up rather than kind of building out um, and also using what is already there. then I think that it's personally from a kind of climate and environmental and also an economic perspective, it would be better. And obviously, yeah, the social community side of things is better to kind of spread out the different hubs around.
12: I think the concept of the, the church and community and culture all of those things need to align and there is a distinct change in culture which actually then shifts towards financial benefit so if we're being really hard-nosed about this then there needs to be cash to make change so like i'm mr sustainability but there needs to be cash to make change so um linking those things together linking the culture together and getting people in control of their own environments together and working as communities, having those discussions and sharing their knowledge. I've just retrofitted my house, I've just put the PV in. Actually, we need a bigger cultural change to make this this shift change in line with, with the local policies, which need to be aligned on a global or a UK scale, rather than just London shining and being big, because you have that fight of looking at London and everyone going, oh, yeah, you're doing a really great job, but there's actually pushback rather than like a, a collaborative environment so I actually think linking those hubs together um, and creating a you know a culture where we're working together and we're, we're being together again I think it's probably pretty fundamental to that to that whole <coughs> philosophy of place community um, and driving that change through oh, you
7: said that wasn't your own expertise Pedro, how, how do you feel about um, the role of placemaking,
1: the role of sustainability in placemaking? What we can do to bring things together to to make the whole place better? So, so the, the the role of hubs, fifteen minute city, fifteen minute city is actually a um, an academic idea that came out of Paris, um, and it wasn't an I, if I'm if I'm not wrong, it wasn't um, somebody from the built environment. It was actually an economist, a Colombian economist, a migrant. Uh, settled in in paris and and all of his expertise about economics and donor economics and and really thinking about um innovative ways of living and that's permeated now uh, as a, as a as a generally accepted idea around the world and um, and and i I know that we got a taste of what fifteen minutes city looks like and feels like during the pandemic because we 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 were as as a as a species on planet earth we were confined to our localities so we we got a sense of what it feels to to be that and i think that there's a there's a really um strong healthy uh uh, importance in that the the idea of being uber local the idea of investing in, in local communities um, invest, investing in local people, investing in local a- economies, I think can only be a good thing. I mean, so in central government, they're talking about it as as the levelling up agenda. So w- whichever way we look at it, is packaged in lots of different ways. It, it makes a lot of sense to begin to invest in, in the uber local. But just to, to touch on some of the, some of the other the points that the table have, have the panel discussed, the future of the high street I think is really fascinating one. that again, because of the pandemic, this reset that we've had, not just for economics but also through um, through our building stock, that it's no longer enough for um, for retail just to be or the high streets to be in places where you go and buy things. It is now there has to be added value. So the the high street for local communities should be places that, 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 that people can engage in, places that um, um businesses can thrive, charities can thrive. So it's become this multicultural thing. And and then this, this idea of existing existing buildings and retrofit. I also think we need to be thinking about and examining existing communities. I, I find that as Certainly, me as an architect in the architectural profession, we we're very good at talking about buildings. We're not very good about talking about people. And 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 from my practice, that's that's our approach. We come we come at it talking about and thinking about people. So it's not just the existing buildings; it's also the existing communities. And if, for me, environmental sustainability and social sustainability they go hand in hand. And then those two things lead on to cultural sustainability. Which is also something else. I think we, need, we as, as a profession, we need to start getting more specific about what we mean in terms of sustainability. Whether it's environmental, social, cultural, uh, and really begin to make those distinctions. So I'm um, a massive supporter of 15 Minute City. And, and I, was, I was talking to Jacob earlier that inadvertently it's what I did two years ago, that I moved my practice. to to the locality I lived in, in outer London, in East London, in Redbridge, and then when the pandemic hit, it it kind of um, validated those choices, because I could walk to work in my office, I was one of those few few lucky people that could get out, and the building wasn't, because it's a public building, it wasn't locked down, it wasn't shut down, so for me, it wasn't that disruptive, it just validated some of those choices.
7: You're very good at talking about property, not very good about uh, talking about people. You mentioned the L word, mm-hmm. uh, Ben. Let's talk a little bit more about about that and the role of love for places, um, you know, the, and the spaces in between in uh, properties in in creating um, community creating place and creating places, and the role that this industry, everyone around this table, has to play in that.
2: Yeah. So, I thought... Mean, this, this might all get a bit pithy, but I'm <laughs> going to run with it. Um, and, and so I've just been scribbling stuff down, but, um, you know, fundamentally to everything is that, you know, placemaking place needs people. And uh, kind of philosophically, people need a purpose. And what we are always interested in is, you know, that purpose, be it social. So whether it be a place where you live, be a place that you work, be a place that you, you know, spend your leisure time, um, but there needs to also be sort of a, an economic strand to all of that. So I guess I think that you could look at that and say, well, people need to make money out of it, but also it needs to serve purpose beyond the fact that you are, you exist in a place and you contribute to that economy. And I think the, the, the missing chain of that social and economic is the environmental and really as developers, as placemakers, people who are in charge of policy, the environmental strand of what we do is one of the most important things that we can deliver because you ask someone to, I mean, people can barely put a plastic bottle in and recycling bin, you know, and it fathoms me that people will just go to the easiest option. During the pandemic, I sort of thought, well, you know, no one's ever going to get on a plane again, are they? You know, like, oh, actually, wasn't it great not to have that kind of, you know, a subtle dip in carbon emissions, but people have just reverted back to the type. They've gone, well, actually, I'd quite like to go away, Actually, and I don't want someone else to sort out that problem. And so I think as, yeah, as the decision makers and people who are actually trying to make a difference, that environmental strand of placemaking, be it in the built environment or being through landscape or through ecology and biodiversity, we need to be responsible for driving that forward because no one else is going to do it. Um and one of the things that you touched upon was this how do we how do we take a problem both in the industry and from society yeah. how do we add those two things together to make it greater than the sum of its parts. So one of one of the things as a developer would like to think what we can count but we we, you know we believe that two two equals five but if you kind of you can do well and do good and so we're working in um, in the Docklands at the moment on a scheme which is in an existing building which is underneath a flyover and the idea of that that business centre for want of a better word is that it looks beyond its red line in terms of employment so everyone who from the who works in the coffee shop who provides the coffee beans who undertakes the cleaning contracts everyone is within a two mile radius of that building and that you know as a as a developer we're an asset manager we're getting service charges and rents from mm-hmm. our occupiers and we could quite easily just farm that out to an opco and say just get anyone get the cheapest but actually we say no let's find people who need employment let's find people that want training and empl- uh, training opportunities and let's bring them to this building because we have the opportunity to create that change. and it doesn't cost any more money it's just hard work yeah it just means that those people who then you know and it can come to, you can do this during construction you can do this in maintenance and management You can do it through every part of the livelihood of the building, bringing forward a development. It's just people don't do it, it's a bit hard, and yeah, we need to change that mindset. We need to not be afraid of a bit of hard work, and actually we need to get away from doing it to look good, so doing it because it actually makes a difference.
4: I mean, I, can I just say, yeah, I mean, I think time is such an element in what you're describing because it's not a quick return. I mean, those sort of investments, you need to sort of see it in lo- a bit longer run and say, OK, now I get the return because those people are owning that place. They'll look after it. It can be a level of care. And then it filters. And if you have loads of those dotted around the city, they're all, you know, you're empowering lots of places. Fantastic thing. That's I great. All the
7: Andrew, I've neglected you a, right. little, a little, little bit. Um, do you feel responsible for this environmental strand that brings everything together?
5: I, I'm, I'm, I feel uh, tension in it, constant <laughs> tension in it. I, I, it it's, it's interesting. Well, I, one of the thing, there's a couple of things that always strike me as, as problematic, is, is the idea that you always have to build more. Um, people have to get more building onto sites. People have to build more to finance it. So there's, the starting point is more. And the, the the overriding question for me is actually: Have we already got enough? Yeah, uh, you know, that, that whole piece about buildings in 30 years' time and 80% of them being here already—that's um, that's for me, right? One of the one of the key things is, there, is it to do—is the problem actually to do with the way development is financed, um, that you, you just have to keep building more to make it work? And actually, there isn't. There's, you know, and the, so therefore, the, the financial and the economic model for retrofit. Is, is more problematic and difficult so that, that's one thing the other thing that i'd like to see is a change in how we people view their their building stock there's this there's this nasty thing that surveyors use and property uh, landowners and land use which is which is a red line every everything in planning has a red line around it and that red line stops generally at the front door or at the site boundary i'd like to see that red line extend to the opposite side of the road so, so that everybody that's thinking about their building and their their site is actually also thinking about the public space. Treat your site as to the other side of the road. Um, and I think that forces, that, that 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 would be a really positive thing because it forces people to think about their environs, how what they're doing contributes to what's going on around them. And if, if there's a, a way of curating that in such a way that everybody, is, is contributing to an overall vision for that public realm i think that, that actually is is a kind of massive value driver for the people that are trying to fundamentally you know, um, charge higher rents in their buildings or sell buildings at, hi- at higher values so so I, I think i think that's that's something i'd, I'd really like to see i, I think in terms of the 15 minute city I, I i live out in southeast london in a suburb and 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 it's a you in, in bromley and it's a fantastic 15 minute neighborhood but at, at the moment i think i'm using i'm living in a 15 minute neighborhood mondays fridays saturdays and sundays and tuesday wednesday and thursday i'm living in a centralized model where i'm coming into the city um, it was it was London Bridge Monday morning was completely barren at nine o'clock in the morning, yet Tuesday it was absolutely heaving. So again, London's got this tension that it's wrestling with of you've got the kind of pandemic success it it was a very successful period, I think, for fifteen minute neighbourhoods, and we're 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 edging back towards the previous paradigm. Um, and and a lot of people are probably living in both at the minute. And and, uh, and we're I think we're still exploring it and trying to work out what the right answer is. So there's a, there's a whole bunch. I think there's some great themes coming out this morning. Uh, trying to crystallise them all in one's mind is an absolute nightmare. Um, but it, yeah, it comes down to money um, underneath it all, but also behaviour.
7: We've got about ten minutes left, and the question number one that is coming to last, obviously, is around the sort of innovation or policy that you'd like to put forward to increase public well-being and facilitate delivery of climate resilient streetscapes and buildings. Andrew, is the red line, the expansion of the red line, your innovation or policy change that you'd like to see? Or is that... I'd, I'd love
5: to see that. And then, and then the other thing is, is, is proper legislation. I can't wait to see Part Z of the building regulations come in, okay. where we regulate embodied carbon and it forces everybody, puts a, a framework in that people have to operate within. Otherwise, you don't get building regulation sign-off.
7: Marion, what would be your policy or innovation? Well, it's not going to be very sexy because it's about retrofit.
6: <laughs> but um, it's mostly, you know, the 0% VAT on anything to do with retrofit. There's been some measures recently, but it doesn't include windows. Windows is still at 20%. I mean, we're not going to get there if we don't address windows across the entire country as the number one <laughs> that's, that's easy to do. Uh, so that's definitely what and and also we're not going to get there if we don't help finance these retrofits i mean technically we're just about grasping the solutions right now we know how to do it but the finance is still a complete mm-hmm. imaginary thing so we need to i mean i would, I would dare to say a zero percent loan uh, on mm. whatever time it takes a little bit like um a student loan, but on zero percent, not six percent. Uh, so I think we need to invent some mechanism to finance this massive retrofit challenge that we
8: have. Um, I think for me it's about increasing standards quickly and having a roadmap for that to get to passive house levels for both retrofit and, and new build. I think if where we are doing new building, like I said, that is, is going to happen. We do have stock that needs to be um, regenerated like we have to be doing that at Passive House Standards. I'm seeing stuff come through now, which which isn't, and I think it's going to be retrofitted in 20 years, you know, 25 years, a huge cost. So I think we need the standards to get there. I think that will create a shift in the finance market and the supply chain market and and get better behaviour about getting to the challenge and meeting the challenge.
14: Thank you. Henry. Um, I I think I would sort of, very similar to Andrew's thing about the redlining, I think, you know, rephrasing that in a way um, is, somehow increasing the way that the scope of how we design our building and the scope of how we engage in the public realm so um it's almost i hate to repeat what she said it's almost what he said you know if, if everyone has a responsibility to design beyond their sort of exact area and particularly almost <clears throat> have a a, a, a specific uh, focus on how you treat that um, that public realm um, as an ownership of your site i think that would be something that might actually increase the that.
9: Yeah. Well, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to refer, <laughs> refer everyone back to this if I want to take a quick quick look at it, but this, this is a sketch which I did, it. and this kind of sets out where well, I want policy change, to be quite honest. Um, sorry, sorry um, and it covers a bit what Andrew said uh, and also what Henry said, um, because I think the ownership of buildings and the street are really, really important, and what's quite problematic is more often than not unless you're a landlord which owns the whole street maybe like crown estate does um you know manage that influence regent street etc um it, it's it's quite tricky so, um, so i think there needs to be some form of policy that uh if you're um if you're allowed to adapt a building in a certain way uh, you can go gain some some stories um but as part of that, maybe there's some some levy as well that if you if the people within that building, uh, who have the carbon offset maybe the the tenants and also as part of the development. Why can't that money go local, why can't that money go to the street, why can't that go towards. Um, integrating green infrastructure green infrastructure, which is linked in not only the street level, but in the top of the buildings. Um, I had the opportunity to have a fantastic tour around 22 Bishopsgate, and uh, it was amazing looking down from the top. felt like you were in an airplane, but it was just so disheartening to see so much grey across the whole of London. And I'm looking at you, Rob, because there's just loads of plants. It was moves on, and it would be lovely. Lo- I know you're trying <laughs> to make a difference, and that's why you're here. today we invited to, you. Yeah, I mean, I'll take that
12: away for the whole industry. <laughs> <laughs>
9: in. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, that's where you're told to you put it, to be fair. But wouldn't it be great if, if there was some impetus for developers to say, look, you know what? You can have two extra stories on your building as long as you build out of timber, <laughs> <laughs> which <laughs> is green, and you can put a green roof on it and and then you can begin to to green up the city you can improve biodiversity across the city and all of that is going to encourage people to want to come back people Mm -hmm. want to go and live and work in buildings which they feel um environmentally sustainable where um companies who have strong esg policies and they're all going to get strong esg policies because it's become more and more important to maintain uh staff to want to come and work for companies and they're going to have to be working in the buildings which they feel can deliver that so I may have pushed it quite far to a utopia there but that's all the things I think we need to be thinking about I don't know what the exact policy is but there's something in there <laughs> um
10: I suppose that well, it's not really an. well maybe it is an innovation us um, developers are pretty secretive people <laughs> we don't we don't talk to each other we don't especially when we're de- developing the same areas and i think one thing just listening to this conversation has been really interesting because the theme that through everything that everyone's talking about is people is communities is how do we produce something for the future user of that space and i'm really interested to hear about the the, the building in france which is can be mm. transformed to anything that that's that's where we should be going but Where do we start from that? What do the community need? And one of my experiences, I worked for TfL for some time and we we had some public exhibitions. I think I was telling telling someone earlier about it. The people, people in the area often don't know what they want and don't know what they need. And actually, the debate needs to be with us who are at the starting point of putting things in place in an area, what do we actually, what should we be producing? We are so insular, we, we we take, you know, I'm very lucky I work with Stuart, who is who is a great advocate in looking at communities, what do communities need? That's his first question every development to be asked for. But it still is one building, one development in an area. And actually, we should all be talking to each other and sharing that knowledge and making a community in a space, because often there are developments Mm really fit new builds, all sorts happening in the same area. And we're not talking to each other to find out what that is. Uh, uh, Innovation, Jenna. I think talking to each other uh, is innovation.
7: (laughs) 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 Um,
11: I think uh, my policy would be to I think ban all CGI's from the planning process, (laughs) because they they completely distorted the conversation. Um, And they're they're a a new thing. When I got into planning, it was all just GA's plan section elevation, black and white, you know, one to one hundreds and details. And and we're now seeing preap presentations that come on for an hour that do not have well, sections have gone completely. Um, elevations have gone completely. We see plans, but they're drawn at a very, very kind of chart-like level. And it's just CGI after CGI after CGI after CGI. And what it does is it just corrupts the whole conversation down a very superficial derivative you know, aesthetic outcome, really. Um, and you're not going to find a new environmental architecture or a new way of... We're not going to find anything new unless we just get rid of them. They're absolutely corrupting. And that's from right from you know the little sketches that they do of what a public space is about, you know, which is all just these this is where we've got to get back to. That's the that's what I wanna see. Um you know just just these kind of yeah images about mood and that have no content right up to the ver- the, the whole verified use thing has just gone off the scale as well. And it's you know it's the conversation has gone from talking about buildings and how they function in places to just what they look like from a mile away. And, you know, the distance of which we are now assess. You know, I don't think I've ever seen in the last couple of years, that a, a drawing like that actually shows something in the context of a section across the road. That would be done as a view. And yeah, I would get rid of them. So
1: So going back to the point on existing communities, I think that um, consultation is something I'm quite sceptical about. Um, and uh, it, it all, sometimes it can be treated as a tick box in exercise. Mm-hmm. And I think that needs to be revisited and, and perhaps thinking about it, not as consultation or engagement, but participation. So community participation. And, and one of the things that the that we're interested in, and the commission with the mayor's office is untold stories. So stories that represent the communities that have helped the economic, cultural, social um, success of an area be represented. So moving away from a monoculture. Um, so I mean, I don't have a I don't have a like button to press and like this is the answer. But but there is something to do with working with existing communities in a really empowering way. In um, that goes beyond just being the superficial. and and a lip service. Section 106 isn't enough. Section 106 legal agreements, we can all lawyer up and get out of them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just moving pots of money around. It's moving numbers around. That doesn't really contribute to existing communities. So um, some other meaningful way of involving and enhancing the people that have contributed to success um, of an area. And this, this is a really common thing we see in urban regeneration, that Often ethnic minorities are pushed out because of pricing, because of economics, because of politics, but not just ethnic minorities. I mean, there's also socioeconomic um, artists that move into an area. So in Shoreditch in, in, the, in the late 90s, there was a, it was a big art, art community and they're the ones that regenerated, really made it interesting. In the Elephant and Castle, the Latin American community, they're, they're the ones that made it cool. They're they're the first ones to get pushed out. So something in policy, and but but I think it goes beyond policy. Though I think it's individuals. Like the local authority has to want to protect these groups, and the developers have to want to see, or have to see the economic value in it, and often there is. And then the architects have to understand the people they're designing for. So I think it's it's a concerted effort. I think we need to change the way we think in a number of different ways. From the
12: start, of the project there's a there's an embedded culture in building which you have to shift, change, and think about differently, and recognise all the different key components of, of that process to make it to make a change happen. And um, construction is all about risk. So if you can help the developers manage their risk or remove it by saying this is what you're going to do, so that covers policy change, defining what their zero you know, actually is um, understanding your finance models. And we're doing projects at the moment where we know we get there's, there's green finance, which is which giving an improvement on investment potential, but we're not seeing that being put back into the project. It's disappearing off somewhere else in the, the stream. So there's an element of transparency that's got to go into the whole process at a number of different levels to make that change. And I think, you know, some of the, the bigger things other than, you know, defining what net zero and making sure that's happening it needs to be we need to look from an infrastructure perspective. So, yes, the buildings need to change, but uh, from a technology um, uh, and a, an energy perspective, we're not doing enough quickly enough. Um, and if you look at other examples where people have accelerated the standard on a phase basis, but done it in quite a short period of time, What you say is actually we're going to change over 10 years, but we'll split that down into three phases. What the industry does, there's loads of clever people here, you know, they'll jump to the 10 year point rather than the the short term point. If you say 2050, that's that's 30 years away. Mm -hmm. Okay, we've got loads of time and the people are still building, particularly outside of London, buildings that, you know, just building next compliant. And we're allowing that to happen. And developers won't change unless you, you help them change. So and culturally, you know, we've got five percent of the wealth is with ninety percent of the people. But ninety yeah, ninety five percent of people have a say what they're gonna do and how they're gonna live. So that's you know actually the we're catching out everything that you just said about we, you know, we as occupants in buildings, you know, we have a say. We don't have to be in that building. So there's a real shift change in culture. I think that's that recognise be is a huge, huge, huge change.
7: How um, the people?
12: People.
7: Uh, know, yeah. Um, so I think yeah have been some, yeah, very good points, I think.
13: Yeah, the red, red line sort of concept is definitely fantastic and one that. And, um, yeah, I kind of see on a day-to-day basis of clients kind from of saying that, you know, their building stops at the street and they have no control over sort of the surrounding areas, which um, is, yeah, is um, something that I think should definitely change. Um, I think there are definitely, yeah, lots of different, Policies that I would love to have. I think it's quite frustrating, at least um, with kind of my line of work, that you know people don't think enough about biodiversity and about water. When at least from you know a carbon perspective and from you know a physical risk plant perspective, they are so hugely important. If you have you know trees, then that can help sort of surrounding your asset. That can you know, kind of green roofs or anything like that. You can help reduce your flood risk. You can help reduce your heat stress. You can help sort of with wind same with water you can have the drought risk people don't kind of quite realise how big a risk that actually is in London we think we have you know so much water because you know it rains for the time whereas actually that's not going to be the case in years and years time but unfortunately at the moment there isn't, isn't quite that sort of acknowledgement of that being a material risk for so many people um so I think long winded. if I had to choose one policy that would probably make an actual difference at the moment it's probably towards the line of what we're seeing, for example, in France right now, with Dick Tessier, like making sure that people get ownership over at least their energy consumption and bridging that gap between the development um, and you know, the actual operational side of things and making sure that people are starting that dialogue. Because, yeah, as I said, I'm seeing it with a lot of clients in France right now when they're having to actually be managed to collect their energy consumption and report on it, they're now starting to panic and sort of think, oh, actually, this then leaves us to think about this bit of about sort of, you know, Sustainable buildings and this aspect. So it kind of starts at least the ball rolling, and it seems to be one of the most accessible ways for people to start thinking about sustainability is their emission carbon. So I think, whilst we've got nice, MIS um, compliance coming in and various other sort of legislation, I think having, as you were saying, those kind of year on year sort of tangible um, goals, for example, that people can work towards, I think at least then helps start the dialogue for them, um, more policies and shifts to. Tech using the data yeah. to really sort of help. And people giving people more and more benchmarks. And obviously, yeah, we use, for example, tools such as CREM, the carbon the they want to a lot. Um, so, yeah, there are different benchmarks produced by sort of different um, different bodies, but making it kind of more enforced um, and, yes, again, sort of bridging that between, you know, obviously you've got the embodied carbon um, piece, but also the operational carbon and finding out a way that you can regulate the carbon in both ways that uh, we're designing buildings that will then be stable operation made, but also not just knocking them down and building a new one just because it will then fit the purpose. I think. Rob.
2: Wow, there's been some brilliant points that uh, I, I'm going to bring back to the placemaking thing. And I was going to say that I think we need a sort of blend of both. I think we've talked about London quite a lot. I think London has some massive advantages in terms of being already pretty dense. and It's got a brilliant public transport system. I think, you know, locally, I live in a sort of little market town up in Hertfordshire, which is getting sort of constantly sort of lots of uh, really crap housing developments being plugged onto it. And I think the placemaking there is just setting people up to fail and it brings back to Lydia's point that people don't necessarily know what they want because what they're being sold is the aspiration of a kind of detached house with two cars. Um, and these places are just really poorly connected so that you have to drive two cars and the school infrastructure isn't there, so the schools on the other side of town and things like that. So we're setting communities up to fail, and I think we've got to get much better at um, selling them, you know, what is good design, mm. and, um, and then I think the policy should be there to sort of help them do that.
3: So I really, really appreciated what um, Ben said, and what Pedro said, and what Rob said, and in fact what Rob said, both Rob, um, <laughs> because I really believe, I'm really nervous. We've got seven and a half years seven and a half years to halve the carbon commission uh, emissions of the whole of the Western world. That's nuts. And I don't think people talk about that enough. I think people don't put that into perspective. I think people are so busy with their lives, with making money, with taking care of people who are sick, with working three jobs, with whatever it is, that, that we can't deal with that. But we kind of need to speed, well we all know, we need to speed up cultural change. Because without cultural change, i.e popularisation, normalisation of sustainable living, we don't get politicians saying yes. We don't get councils saying yes. We don't get people saying that's the place I want to live in. We don't get people appreciating the things that we're trying to do. We get developers putting out shitty houses in the middle of nowhere with no accessibility because that's what culture says is good. Right. Mm. And like on TV, you still see people in their four by fours. You still see people going to Australia. I mean, my background is I worked, I've worked, i been at ITV for 11 years as a lawyer um, and, you know, TV has a massive role to play in terms of changing culture. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, obviously the first thing they start with is TV production. And that's not going to do anything. (laughs) It's what's on screen that matters. It's what's being advertised that matters. It's what's being normalized. And I don't mean documentaries. I mean EastEnders, I mean Coronation Street. I mean everything having that planet placement, that messaging so that it becomes normal and it becomes abnormal just to live in the middle of nowhere with no public transport. It's not acceptable from councils. It's not acceptable from developers. It's not acceptable from government. But as we know, government isn't going to do anything councils aren't gonna change their ways and commerce isn't gonna change its ways unless the public change the way they feel. They feel that they have a connection and a benefit and a self-interest in changing things. And that's only gonna happen through better communications with them and accessible communications with them. At a community level, we can't wait for television, unfortunately, I've learned. We can't wait for government and councils, that's for sure. Uh, You know, it's about that community led kind of cultural change. And so that's why this piece of research with Imperial is so integral so that we can do it in an informed and tailored way so that we're making sure it's inclusive, not of different demographics, but of different groups within those different demographics. So that when we are having those conversations, those of us who are willing, we can do it as effectively as possible. But also if we can roll out these hubs to every UK town and city, all of those shopping centres and even some of the department stores maybe that are being changed into various units or even social housing having these things that then we can change and speed up the change of culture. So to me, these are all brilliant ideas, but they're all hampered by culture, whether that's the culture of the politician or the culture of the CEO or the culture of the consumer. It all affects us, and it's great that we're all on board, but until we acknowledge the fact that actually we need the general public to be on board, who 70% of whom are concerned about climate change, but I guarantee you 70% of whom wouldn't pay an extra 50 quid, you know, to, to live somebody, somewhere that's more energy efficient at the moment, because they just don't understand the benefits to them. Um, and so I think that just needs to become a normal part of culture empowering people to learn the skills empowering people to ask those questions to find it normal and also these hubs as we've done has really empowered the community in terms of giving paid jobs and also giving those who are trying to get back into employment but can't get one of the paid jobs for example, because there aren't many of them, um, you know, the work experience, the volunteering experience, both in the business side, but also on the shop front side, so that they can put that on their CV, whether they're a returning mum, whether they're a student back from university doesn't have the experience, whether they're someone unemployed due to the pandemic, they can get their social, um, their social media experience, they can get their front of house experience. And so again, it's giving back to the community in terms of actually providing jobs and supporting kids and supporting people who need that. You know, that to be part of mainstream society, quite frankly, because we're also working with mental health charities, neurodiversity charities, food banks, all sorts of different groups. So that socioeconomics, ethnicity, religious background is not an issue because it's accessible for all and we're actively outreaching to all. So I really believe cultural change. For me, the innovation would be investing in getting this research finished uh, with Imperial and getting this pilot finished with Imperial and Bays. Hopefully with one or two corporate sponsors, because so I need to find about a million at the moment, uh, so that we can roll them out. And obviously this pilot is going to cost more because it's doing all this additional work. But once you've got that blueprint, it's going to cost a lot less to be rolled out across the UK. And, and I think it's really important and um, we can have all the conversations we want. But if the politicians won't change policy and if the consumers won't pay for it or appreciate it, then kind of we're screwed. Ben.
2: So I started writing down everyone who stole my idea. So everyone's kind of said some of these things. Um, but I think, I think, you know, they're all, they're all incredibly relevant. Relevant. We need to regulate embodied carbon. Uh, it's no not good enough to stop putting stuff in the bin and forgetting about it. Uh, we need to incentivize innovation. So I would go beyond reducing taxation, I would go on actually, you know, giving money to people who are really making a difference. Um, I don't think it's about perhaps lessening legislation, but I think it's about promoting innovation financially, not just in look how good everyone look at these guys Aren't these guys doing well. Um, I think we need to start penalising traditionalists. I think that is going to start upsetting the balance between new is more new is better you is going to give me a better return on my investment than old because quite frankly why would you why would you not lock a building and leave down and rebuild it if it's going to be more profitable and frankly easier to do that. Um, so those are kind of my three and then I, I sort of then came up with a new one which I think we actually just need an empathy test for <laughs> everyone that is involved in bringing forward places and buildings because if you are if you don't care about the impact that you're having, you're not there to make decisions that impact on the time
7: Catherine, the final word is
4: is yours. Okay, I mean, I'm mindful of time, so I'll I'll be really brief. I would start with existing policy, and I would grab a hold of the Social Value Act, which just had its 10-year anniversary, which has been um, a bit diluted and was a bit um, woolly in terms of its requirements, and it's already up to Tanti, and it's turning into something which is going to be enforced and imposed so that more people are doing what Ben is doing. So I would start with that.